Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm glad to have all of you with us for today's edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, what seems to be the never-ending controversy over abortion tops, uh, the conversation on our show today. Um, and let me just give you a, a reminder of the background that will lead us to talking about what the U.S. Supreme Court actually did not do late yesterday, as was expected. So I'm going to back up. Remember that um, fairly recently, uh, District Court Judge uh, Matthew Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas, um, agreed with litigants that mifepristone, the first in the true two-drug regimen that women use in, in pill form uh, to end um, a, a pregnancy, uh, could no longer be used. And he cited as his reasoning his concern that the FDA had used faulty research and done faulty vetting of the drug more than 20 years ago. Of course, that decision was appealed. An appeals court stayed Kaczmarek's ruling, um, which uh, allowed Mifepristone to go forward for the time being. But at the same time, the appeals court did put some other restrictions in place, um, one of which was that uh, the drug could not be used. I think it was passed uh, 10 weeks of uh, pregnancy and couldn't be sent through the mails. That all went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we were waiting yesterday for the court to rule on what they wanted to do about mifepristone. And for this point, before I introduce the panel to talk about this, I want to read you just a little bit of what um, Tom Goldstein, writing on SCOTUS blog, said about all this. The court expected to rule yesterday, said, no, we need more time to talk. It'll probably be Friday night before we reach a decision. So here's what Goldstein said. The court's extension of its administrative stay is unusual. That suggests that exchanges are ongoing between the justices. The court could be preparing its own opinion or a nuanced stay order. Or one or more justices may be writing opinions supporting or dissenting from a stay. The court has several options before it, both respect to the stay and with how the appeal of the trial court's ruling proceeds. The Supreme Court could entirely block Kaczmarek's ruling or permit it to go forward. They could adopt some middle ground, as the Court of Appeals has. Regarding the appeal, the justices could allow the case to proceed in the Court of Appeals or take the case up themselves immediately. Kevin Riley, uh, I, I know that's a lot, and I hope it's not uh, terribly confusing. The bottom line on this is we have no idea what the status of mifepristone is going to be as we move toward the weekend. Well, yes, you know, and it is confusing, Bill. I mean, uh, uh, and it's good to be with you today. Uh, but, it, you know, this is uh, what's happening now with uh, all 
of the entire abortion issue. It, it's become so confusing, and we have 50 states and uh, and other, you know, all kinds of organizations pursuing policies. And I think the Supreme Court is going to continue to be dragged into it. And it's really a question of um, how many of these cases they can take on and how firmly they're going to hold to their rulings, or will they just look the other way and let it play out in the states? Kevin Riley, editor-at-large for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us today, along with two of my colleagues from GPB News, Stephen Fowler, political reporter at GPB. Stephen, thank you for being here. Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers, but now stepping in as a reporter <laughs> on the GPB News team. Thank you, too, for being here, Donna. And Rick Dent whose expertise on political commercials is really unparalleled, I think, in the state of Georgia. He's also vice president of Matrix Communications. All right. Having introduced all of you, Donna, pick up from um, where we started on this uh, case, because what it means is right now, women in Georgia who can only have mifepristone up until six weeks, basically, the heartbeat law is in effect. Uh, but they don't know what to do about it, and neither do the doctors who may be prescribing to uh, to them. Yeah, I think it's a really uh, um, confusing time for a lot of people. They're, you know, in these positions where they uh, feel that they, you know, those who um, are still trying to figure out all the fallout from the um, from what the court did with Roe versus Wade uh, and putting into the state's laps are now trying to figure out where where things stand, how to move forward. And now with this um, with the, what these rulings dealing with the the pills, there's there's just um, just a lot of uncertainty over what what to do and how to move forward in all of this. And the the the, the tough part is really um, the people who are uh, who are still trying to, um, as medical professionals, figure out where their role is in all of this. And the fact that it, it could affect something that happened in Texas could affect Georgia is the real problem. Stephen Fowler. It's, uh, you know, what, we're, what we've seen recently, well, not just recently, but we've seen in periods of American history is this push and pull between the judicial branch and the legislative branch, and particularly the push and pull between more conservative uh, judges and legislative branches and the more liberal cons uh, branches of the government. And so, you know, the reason I think it's important to note that the reason we're seeing this delay is because the Supreme Court appears to be taking very seriously the ramifications of trying to address these lower court rulings and address these things that are moving at a much faster pace nowadays, whether it's abortion or gun rights or other things that are moving at a much faster pace than the typical deliberative nature that we have seen from the Supreme Court and the time that it takes from a lawsuit to be filed at the local level to get all the way up to that highest court level, you're just seeing things skyrocket straight to the top. And so I think it is potentially untenable for a lot of issues to keep going like this. But, uh, you know, we at least have 48 more hours for the Supreme Court justices to get their act together, so to speak. Rick Dent, to add a layer of complication to this, there are court observers, Supreme Court observers, oh. who say the real issue that they have to grapple with is not uh, about abortion and the use of mifepristone as a part of an abortion regimen, but rather, 
they may be able to rule on the basis of whether Kazmarek made a mistake in assuming that his judgment about an FDA-approved drug should supersede what the Food and Drug Administration uh, uh, signed off on more than 20 years ago. Uh, if they agree with him on that, it puts at risk any number of other drugs that FDA has signed off on and could be challenged moving forward. You know, a couple of things. <clears throat> Remember the, the good old days when Republicans used to rail against activist just judges? And now <laughs> that has completely flipped. And now <laughs> impeach your Warren. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have Republican <laughs> activist judges and they love it. So we have that problem. Number two, we have a US Supreme Court that is a facsimile of a US Supreme Court. I think we all need to realize that it's a political institution now and it's never coming back. And the idea that in the end, this is going to be good for women with that court, I just think is, um, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I just don't trust this court. And they've been going, you know what? They The illusion of impartial, impartiality began with Gore versus Bush through Citizens United, which said anybody can spend any amount of money they want to in politics. And that's the trend. And we might as well face it. It's just another political institution. And this is not going to end up well for women. I wish that I could disagree with Rick, because I'd love to do that on this show. But I think he's <laughs> I think he's spot on here. And this whole mess with Clarence Thomas doesn't help. I mean, yeah. I, I I get that, you know, by by some ways of looking at it, it's unrelated. But Americans are are being uh, exposed to information that continues to undermine the credibility of the court, which only a few years ago was considered one of the most trusted institutions in government. And now it's just found itself, uh, you know, almost, <laughs> I mean, soon it'll be as unpopular as the media if it's not careful. Ke Kevin, you know, uh, Rick Dan talks about the good old days. Um, I actually thought about the good old days when I saw the court had uh, deferred a ruling on this until sometime Friday, probably early evening, late afternoon, early evening. Uh, there was a time, Kevin, when uh, uh, political leaders as high up as the president of the United States like to make decisions and release them on Friday night because the Saturday newspaper and Saturday TV newscasts were the, among the least uh, uh, consumed in the country. So I thought, well, is that part of what the court is doing here? But Kevin, the reason that's old-fashioned thinking is social media has totally changed whether Friday well, night, there's there's not a dead zone on Saturday anymore. I, I thought you were saying that because some of the justices were planning to take a trip on someone's yacht or something on Saturday, and that's why they were going to do it. Um, now, all right, I, so I, we're going to wait. I will add something, Bill. I think 24-hour news cycles are the, the new thing. I think that that's really the change. They they still have the, um, as we, we say in the business, feed the beast in terms of news. And when something comes out on a late Friday for the Saturday and Sunday shows, they're going to focus a lot on it. So uh, to have something out late on a Friday night and expect it not to be a big deal over the weekend is something of the past. 
because of yeah, 24-hour news cycles and, as you mentioned, social media. But I think that the 24-hour news stations are the, the real beast in all of this when it comes to putting out that news. Stephen, before we get off this subject, we uh, also should point out we are still waiting for the Georgia Supreme Court to uh, issue its ruling on whether or not Georgia's heartbeat abortion law is, in fact, constitutional and legal. And to the best of my knowledge, Stephen, we've got no indication from the court. It's been quite a while since they heard the case, and we've got no indication when they might rule. Well, again, quite a while is relative, you know, in the time when it seems like there's always constantly rulings coming out and things being aggressively escalated. You know, the the arguments were relatively recently, and the Georgia State Supreme Court does not quite have the same sense of urgency as something escalated to the United States Supreme Court. Um, but it's not something that I think we should have to wait forever on um, the heartbeat bill the life act as it's called i mean was it's been several years in the making with this case and there's a lot of records and there's a lot of uh, briefs and there's a lot of things that have come through and so in the relative lifespan of a controversial lawsuit on a controversial uh, piece of legislation it's it, it's not that long but still you know there's not exactly a timeline where it's like all right mark your calendars we're going to have the final results of our decision on April 29th at 2 p.m. So there's just a lot of refreshing and waiting. And Rick, uh, Rick, go ahead, weigh in. I was just going to say, and, and just understand, because I, I have to look at everything through a political prism. This is good for Democrats. You know, if you remember last year, that abortion decision came right in the middle of an election year. And what did Republicans do? They did something very smart. They shut their mouths because they knew how deadly this issue could become. And they got through last year's election. And as Kevin pointed out now, we're going to have a continuous look at abortion over and over again in all the states and nationally. And that's good news for Democrats because the swing voters are white, college-educated women in the suburbs, and they care about this issue. All right, so we're going to wait to see what the U.S. Supreme Court does with the Mifepristone ruling uh, sometime later tomorrow, and it will have an impact um, one way or the other on uh, on doctors here in Georgia, on women uh, who are pregnant and are considering whether or not they should uh, go ahead with the pregnancy. So we'll wait and see exactly what happens. Um, Stephen Fowler I, I want to get, get into this um, autopsy report that was released yesterday by the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office. It's the, um, it's the autopsy that was conducted on Mel, Manuel Turan, the um, cop city activist who was shot and killed by state troopers um, not terribly long ago. And um, the r- results of the autopsy are fairly dramatic. Um, We have learned that, remember that the Georgia State troopers uh, said that Turan fired at them first. In fact, one state trooper was uh, seriously wounded by a a, a gunshot, and and apparently law enforcement has traced the bullet from that gun back to a weapon that maybe Turan had bought at some point. But this new autopsy report says that Turan was hit by 27 bullets 
There were more than 50 bullet wounds, counting entrance and exit wounds, in uh, their body. Um, Tarrant went by the uh, pronouns they and their. Um, and the autopsy found no traces of gunpowder residue on Tehran's hands or body. This is going to spark an enormous new round of anger and controversy around this issue, Stephen. Yeah, it, it certainly just continues to add to what has already been a difficult uh, story and a difficult conversation, the argument that a lot of times when you get initial information in something like this, a shooting, whether it's from law enforcement or from victims or from things like that, that it doesn't always have the full and complete picture. And what we've seen is a very one-sided flow of information being released for a long time. And what we've seen in the recent times is more information that calls into question the limited information that has come from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the Georgia State Patrol and others. And so this autopsy was done before the family asked for a private autopsy. And part of the headlines that were generated from the private autopsy was the private autopsy said that suggested that Tehran had hands up and was in a seated position when the shooting happened. This autopsy said because of all of the different shooting uh, all of the different weapons and bullet wounds and everything like that, that you really can't try to place and position uh, at any point during that thing. So it's important to note that, you know, also the autopsy can only look at the body and the impacts and the aftermath and isn't exactly going to be a recreation of what happened. But the important thing to pay attention to and that will certainly spark more questions, is that there was no gunpowder residue found on the hands that allegedly fired a gun that shot a state trooper that we've heard nothing about in the months since. And of course, Donna, we know that state troopers do not wear body cams, and so there is no rec recording of exactly what happened in this uh, apparent confrontation. Let me add to this, Donna, um, that uh, Tehran's mother, issued a statement. Uh, let me just read one line from it. We are devastated to learn that our child, our sweet Manny, was mercilessly gunned down by police and suffered 57 bullet wounds all over their uh, body. We can only imagine the impact it has on the family. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we can only imagine because it's, um, it's rough to to read that. I think for anybody, I would imagine even for the police officers to see to recognize that, and it it gets back to the transparency. You talked about the the fact that the state patrol officers do not wear body cameras. Of course, the Atlanta police officers there did. We saw that. That didn't shed much light on what happened, and I just think that it's. <sighs> It's just, I, I don't know if we're ever going to fully understand all of this, but it is interesting that it happened on the same day that Mayor Dickens kind of doubled down on the fact that this mm -hmm. training center will actually be built, will take place. He had his, uh, the task force members, a uh, lot of people behind him as he kind of doubled down on all of that. But it, um, it, it, Kind of, I can see both sides on this. Where the um, the police, obviously, you've got to wonder if a better training center and better training would help 
in preventing someone from being shot and having that many, many wounds on their body. Um, but on the other side, um, it just seems like, you know, just to um, over to stop someone who was in a, a tent with who may have had a gun. We're still, you know, who, who may have shot. We still don't know about that, but that he would be um, have that many wounds on his body from police officers. So um, there's still a lot in this. We don't know. And the more we seem to find out, the more questions that still exist. Kevin. Donna's right about there's still much to learn. Keep in mind, we are awaiting the the results of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's actual report on what happened. So we're getting some things piecemeal, including including this autopsy, which is the second autopsy is, as Stephen pointed out, the family uh, had a their own autopsy done, uh, which was done after the county's autopsy and really quickly released uh, uh, what they said were their results. And, and they had hired someone whose record was so much questionable. So there's a lot going on. But there is one thing we always see in these situations. Once police officers believe they have been fired upon, then you get the fusillade of response. And we have seen that over and over and over again. And then the other thing we see is despite the outcry over that, despite how vicious it can seem to people who are unfamiliar with these situations, it almost always comes down to this. When police are fired on, they are trained to respond that way. And they do. Now, if we don't agree that they should be trained that way, you know, I do think that's a fair discussion to have. But if you have a group of police officers who believe someone shot at them, this is what they're going to do because this is what they're trained to do. And they're responsible for the safety of the community. And when someone fires a gun, if they believe that's what happened. They are going to incapacitate that person as fast as they can. Rick, um, uh, Donna makes the point that uh, this uh, uh, autopsy came just after uh, Mayor Dickens had his first task force meeting. They put together this group of uh, people from various walks of life in Atlanta uh, to become an advisory body to determine just what they ought to do in terms of the police training center. What, what should it look like? Is the location the right location? Although I don't think there's going to be any change in that uh, moving forward. Um, but you know, again, part of the reason for this task force is there are many people who believe that Mayor Dickens didn't do a very good job building grassroots support for this from the very beginning. Of course, he inherited it uh, to some extent, but but never did early on explain exactly what was going to happen here, get grassroots engaged with him. And even now, this task force is meeting behind closed doors Dickens defends that, saying they're worried about their personal safety. Ah, I don't even know where to start on this. You know, <laughs> we made the point in the earlier segment about 24-hour news. The mayor, the city of Atlanta, they have mishandled this from the very beginning. When you don't put information out there, it is filled. That void is filled now by the other side. And the mayor seems genuinely befuddled, like he can't understand what what is the problem here? Well, number one, he doesn't have any that I can see doesn't seem to have much grassroots support. Why did it take this long to release 
to release this autopsy report. He's working with a foundation that will not reveal who its corporate donors are, yet they're going to spend $60 million on this, and they maintain they have no obligation at transparency. Uh, we had no cameras during, during this shooting, and now to solve this, he's going to have a task force that is hiding behind closed doors when the main argument against this thing was it was done behind closed doors doors and he's going yeah, to blame yeah. possible violence for having it behind closed door doors i'm going to give you guys a sneak peek because i do this for a living <laughs> and sometimes i have to sit down with clients and say we don't want input we want the illusion of input and that's exactly what the mayor in the city of atlanta is doing right now they are creating a task force for the illusion of input, but this thing is cut and dried and a done deal. Ooh, Stephen, that is about as cynical a description of what they're doing as you could possibly uh, offer. Well, I mean, it's true. If you look at a lot of government, whether it's, you know, the Atlanta <laughs> Public Safety Training Center or, you know, budget discussions at the state capitol or other things like that, that's a lot of how it's baked in. I mean, the like Mayor Dickens said, every part of this project has been scrutinized, which is certainly true, and has been found to be fully compliant with the law and all environmental protection requirements. But, you know, again, a lot of the pushback would be the people saying that it's compliant with the law and responsible for identifying that are the people that want this to happen, much in the same way that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is investigating the shooting that stemmed from a Georgia Bureau of Investigation operation. And just to the average person, it doesn't instill a lot of faith and confidence and pass the smell test because it looks like the people that are in charge and in positions of power are investigating to see if that power wasn't used properly. And that's a problem that a lot of people have with a lot of government. And with this public safety training center in particulars, it does seem that it is a conclusion that is foregone. I mean, the mayor said this is moving forward because we need it. And it doesn't seem that any amount of information, any amount of questions about the environment or the political environment around it is going to change it. And what that means for people protesting and people against this and what it means for the mayor's office and for a lot of the politicians to support it still remains to be seen. All right. Um, thank you for the conversation in this first segment of Political Rewind. We're going to pause right now and get our first break out of the way. Uh, as we do, I want to remind those of you who listen to GPB radio with some regularity, we're in the middle of a pledge period. And of course, the uh, uh, money that you're able to contribute goes directly to our programming. Um, and it is what allows us to continue with all of the shows, uh, both NPR and locally, that uh, you hear on our air. So if you can help us, that would be wonderful. If you already have, we're grateful. But here's more about our pledge drive. Kevin Riley, Stephen Fowler, Don Lowry, and Rick Dent join me for today's Political Rewind. Rick, I want to start with you, if I may, on this, and then bring the rest of the panel in, because you have been a political professional for decades uh, now. 
uh, despite your youthful appearance. Um, among other things, you were uh, press secretary for uh, Governor Zell Miller. So let me start with you on this interesting uh, story uh, that the Jolt featured uh, today at AJC.com. Um, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, himself at one point, as we all remember, a candidate for president, was on a conservative podcast. And during his conversation on that show, he said that the map for Republicans to win back the White House in 2024 looks bleak if the Republican nominee fails to win Georgia um, in the 2024 election cycle. And he went on to say that Trump has suffered a series of embarrassing failures in endorsing candidates here in Georgia, and therefore uh, the party better be careful not to make Trump their nominee because he wouldn't win what Christie uh, contends is the crucial state of Georgia. So just give me your response to what Christie had to say. Well, number one, I bet Florida would have something to say about that and maybe the Midwest. But I, I do get the point. Uh, Georgia is extremely important. And we know, at least for national races in Georgia now and our Senate races, just how split this state is and how close it is. So, yes, he's absolutely right. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is that uh, Donald Trump is extremely popular in the state of Georgia. The most recent polls prove that. Yeah, he hadn't done a good job of picking some candidates. But, um, you know, I know Democrats are, just can't wait. They hope, they hope that Donald Trump is the nominee. And they hope he has to win Georgia because that would be one heck of a battle here. Stephen, uh, here's an exact quote from the podcast. Christie said, it's over if you don't win Georgia. Look, I know there's a way you can get to 270, the number, obviously, of uh, uh, electoral votes you need to win the White House, without Georgia as a Republican. But if you win those other states, you would have won Georgia because there's a lot of similar dynamics. To me, Georgia's the very best example. So in a way, Stephen... When Rick says people in Florida would have something to say about that, yes, they would. But Florida is now a red state, and you start the campaign presuming it's going to be in the Republican column. Right. And especially if it looks like we're headed for a rematch of Donald Trump and Joe Biden again, you look at the decisive swing states, you know, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and the people that are the most up for grabs and the most persuadable in those states uh if there's republican messaging or if trump somehow manages to convince people that didn't vote for him in 2020 to vote for him in 2024 then yeah that's the way a republican wins because if the people that didn't vote for donald trump in 2020 somehow turn back around in 2024 people in the north atlanta suburbs and people that didn't vote at all like that then those type of people that are changing their minds or they're getting activated are also the type of people that help you get over the top in places like Wisconsin and places like Pennsylvania. So Georgia is the tip of a multi-pointed sphere of states that are important for both parties to win. But also, Chris Christie is probably going to run for president himself, so it helps to say things like that about nice states that could vote for you. <laughs> Kevin? 
Yeah, Chris Christie. Um, he just won't go away. Um, but that said, uh, uh, I do think we're going to have a fun time. I just think that uh, with all of the um, things that are going on, go on in the presidential election, in the end, Georgia, it will be Georgia, Georgia, Georgia all the time. And as Rick pointed out, I mean, 51% of Republicans in that recent University of Georgia poll said they would support Donald Trump. And if you're a Democrat, I mean, you hope that keeps going, that they they nominate him and he runs because, you know, his he he's a loser in Georgia. That's the bottom line. Donna, uh, let me add one more element to what Chris Christie had to say on this podcast. Um, he, he boasted about the fact that when uh, Brian Kemp was uh, uh, fighting a primary against David Perdue, Christie jumped in and endorsed Kemp very quickly. Um, and he told a story about while other Republicans were souring on Kemp, largely because of the way Trump continued to attack him, um, he st- he stayed the course. He said he was on ABC News in uh, December of 2021 and uh, said Kemp's going to win this primary. And he said George Stephanopoulos, uh, the host of the show, told him off air, you're out of your mind. <laughs> He's not going to be able to win. Um, and Christie went on to say, I knew Kemp was going to win all along. Now, part of this could be what Stephen Fowler is talking about. It is possible that Christie's going to launch his own presidential bid. We'll see about that. But he certainly was right to stick with Kemp. Yeah, he certainly was. And I think that the part of it also is that uh, he something else that he mentioned, and that is that he knew what incumbents can do. And he knew that Kemp was in that incumbent position and that that could push him through. And Obviously, he was right. And the, the fact that uh, Kemp did so well that he solidly uh, not only won that primary and it actually was, you know, just trounced um, Purdue in that primary, but then went on to to win for his second term. It shows that there is a lot. He has a lot of popularity in this state. And then his recent comments before some Republican donors, Kemp's recent comments focusing so much on telling people to get past Trump, get past all the um, election lies and, and move forward, I think also kind of solidifies where he is. The fact that, that the poll shows that from the uh, UGA shows that 51 percent favor Trump, I think, um, as we all know, polling is one thing. Uh, the reality um, is, is another. And so I think we just have to wait and see what happens. I think Kim is... Um, Governor Kemp is extremely popular in this state. Kevin, last so, comment about this? Yeah, I wanted to see also what Rick thinks about this. So to me, what's going on here, particularly with Brian Kemp, is he is positioning himself to be a kingmaker, right? I mean, he is the most popular politician in Georgia. So at some point, we know that he will not support Trump. And his hope is that another candidate emerges. And he has said it's not going to be him. Right. So so uh, I think Christie is courting that you know, that possibility, of course, of course, he's hoping that if he runs that he gets that support. But in the end, Brian Kemp could become his endorsement. Right. Rick could become the single most important move in the presidential race. Oh, oh absolutely. And, and then he's got to figure out what does he do and when. 
because this is about his future as well. Now, I know what Democrats are hoping to have happen in Georgia is nominee Donald Trump comes to Atlanta for a rally. Is Governor Kemp too busy? Is he out of state on that day? (laughs) Will he actually go stand on that stage? That's what Democrats want to see. (laughs) All right. Uh, While we're talking about presidential politics, and Rick, again, since you're our ad expert on the show, let's talk about the dueling ads that are now uh, playing out on TV between uh, Trump and Ron DeSantis. DeSantis isn't even an announced candidate. There are many who believe that when his legislative session ends in May, he will announce. He's been on a pre-announcement tour of all the right states, of course. Um, But we now have PACs uh, uh, um, spending fair amounts of money on attacking the other guy. So let me start by playing the audio. Um, Trump has been attacking DeSantis all along. DeSantis has kept his power dry for the most part. He has resisted going overboard or really attacking Trump back in any way. But that's starting to change. And we're going to listen to the audio of a PAC that supports DeSantis going after Donald Trump now. Donald Trump is being attacked by a Democrat prosecutor in New York. So why is he spending millions attacking the Republican governor of Florida? Trump's stealing pages from the Biden-Pelosi playbook repeating lies about Social Security. Here's the truth from Governor Ron DeSantis. We're not going to mess with Social Security as Republicans. What did Trump say? Entitlements ever be on your plane? At some point, they will be. We will take a look at that. Trump should fight Democrats, not lie about Governor DeSantis. Rick? Well, you know, it's interesting. Number one, keep in mind, this is a response ad which means DeSantis is talking about what Trump wants to talk about. So he's spending valuable money uh, on what Trump is discussing. Uh, Number two, DeSantis is in a box. You know, there were stories last week that some of his major funders were concerned that he wasn't fighting back. But the problem he has is he needs Trump voters somewhere down the line if he's going to be successful. And taking down the king and you getting blamed for that is a political problem for him down the road. The other problem he has is that he's in a multi-candidate race right now. So that when, let's say, number one and number two fight each other and you knock votes off of Trump, so to speak, because the lead is so big, there's no guarantee, number one, those votes are going to go to you. They can go to undecided or they can go to other candidates. And many times when one and two go after each other, you watch a third candidate come right up through the middle, untouched and unscathed, and then you have a real problem. So DeSantis has two problems. Number one, attacking Trump and getting killed for that. And number two, even if he does attack him, it doesn't mean it helps DeSantis. It just can maybe lower Trump. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, the, the the interesting thing about these ads and like, uh, you know, the 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 Trump ad against DeSantis in particular, uh, the visuals are it, it's it's kind of the perfect marriage of viral thing that gets people talking about it. But then the actual underlying alleged policy differences that gives a little bit more cover to talk about the ad more than just look at this nutty ad. I mean, the the, the DeSantis. The Ron DeSantis pudding finger story 
is absurd on its face. It's up there with uh, Amy Klobuchar and her salad fork and things like that that don't really have a lot of play other than, wow, that's a extremely bizarre story. But Trump's ad about that discusses entitlement cuts and social security and other things that are more policy driven. And so then you have the cable news outlets and the other outlets talk about the ad and talk about the fight over entitlement cuts and getting in the memorable dig in a way that maybe some of Trump's other attacks and statements and calling him like meatball Ron or other things or accusing him of inappropriate relationships with children when he was a teacher don't get as much play because they're not really grounded in the policy that's supposed to be more fair game in coverage of campaign stuff. Yeah, Donna, let me, let, let, I want to expand on what Stephen just talked about. The first PAC ad that attacked DeSantis on behalf of Trump was one that we've played on the show a couple of times. So you think you know Ron DeSantis. Here's what you don't know. He uh, approved cuts for uh, Medicare and, and as Stephen says, a number of issue-oriented messages that don't play well with voters in either the Republican or the Democratic Party. But then the the Trump a Trump pack picked up on this bizarre story that started circulating about the fact that uh, colleagues of DeSantis's uh, used to be disgusted by the fact that he would take a little container of chocolate pudding and eat it with his fingers. Now. It seems absurd. Let's listen to the audio of the commercial that picks up on that theme. And and as you're listening to it, picture in your head, the visuals are of someone with three fingers in chocolate pudding, sloppy uh, uh, pudding all over the place. Let's listen. Ron DeSantis loves sticking his fingers where they don't belong. And we're not just talking about pudding. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements, like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Oh, and somebody get this man a spoon. Donna, it's crazy, but it's the kind of little thing that can create an image in a voter's head about someone. I, you know, I'm no, I'm no Rick Dent, but I think it's brilliant because it does have you imagining all kinds of things as you're thinking about, you know, the actual policy um, things that it discusses. It's been great fodder for the um, late night comedians too, in terms of talking about it. So it it has legs in that sense that people are talking about it. So I think that. Um, Somebody came up with something brilliant. And and as we know that in the past, little things like that um, can leave an impression that long after, long after things, um, the ads have stopped running. Uh, Bill, I'll just say I'm glad I've generally worked in a profession where I'm not judged by my table manners or I would be in trouble. But that <laughs> said, um, uh, to me, this is really starting to feel like 2016 already, where no matter who emerges against Trump, he both has the, uh, you know, the impulse and reputation to get away with just attacking them, um, you know, viciously and in, in almost trivial ways. And then the difference is now he's apparently got all kinds of money to do it. And I just wonder if just one by one, the potential Republicans who could emerge um, are just kind of knocked down. You know, I just remember that line about uh, little Marco, 
You know, you remember that? I mean, there was a time when we, a lot of people thought Rubio could be the guy for the Republicans. And then that little Marco line basically knocked them off the list and never, he really never came back. Or, or low energy Jeb, uh, which took, which uh, really stuck and took Jeb Bush out of the front running status in the 2016 Republican race. I will say, as we have to take a break, that uh, as foolish as that ad may seem, it does, as Dent pointed out, basically hit on themes that the Trump people want to use against DeSantis. He's going to take away your Medicare, your Social Security. So as he, those are themes that um, they're going to continue to hammer away at. And you can't fault him for that real quick, Rick, because we're late for our break. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, the, the, keep in mind, the reason they're talking about those issues is the older the voter, the more conservative and more Republican that voter is. And older voters get out and vote. So that's why they're battling over that issue. That's a key, key thing with older conservative Republican voters. Thank you, Rick. Natalie Mendenhall is pleading with me. Get the final break out of the way. So here we go, Natalie. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We've only got time to uh, get to one final issue. And Donna, I want to start with you since you covered this so carefully on lawmakers. We know there was a fight during the legislative session. Um, Bert Jones, lieutenant governor, was pushing very hard to end certificates of need for hospitals and certain medical equipment. As he tried to wage that fight, Sonny Perdue, the chancellor of the university system, fought back against him on that. And we have reason to think that one of the reasons that the final budget uh, cut $66 million out of the university system's budget is because Bert Jones wanted to, it was payback. Now we're uh, learning from the uh, Board of Regents that they just might have to increase tuition to cover this shortfall. So here's my question. Are they really talking about doing that? Or is this that's their way of sticking it back to Burt Jones and warning him, be careful because you'll have parents really angry at you if we push forward on this? I mean, you've got to believe that that's a strong possibility that, that they're throwing that out, <clears throat> excuse me, because they they know that that's a way of really drawing attention to this whole issue and how important it is to uh, make sure that we fund the University System of Georgia, which was one of the few areas that really did receive cuts and a deep cut in a, a year when we had a surplus in this state. So uh, I think, you know, part of it, you have to think maybe they're throwing this out there, especially since we know that enrollment in colleges has gone down. Uh, there are just not as many students attending college for various reasons, everything from going straight into the job market, the, the fact that there aren't as many eight kids under 18 right now um, that are going, who are in a position to go on to college. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things involved in that. And for them to say that we're gonna go for a, a tuition increase because of what happened during the legislative session, I think right now they're probably kind of 
you've got to believe they're kind of floating it out there to see what happens, uh, whether it'll go through, especially with, you know, a, a lot of what we've seen um, in the last few weeks is in Georgia. I just I just don't I just don't know whether they're um, going to seriously uh, go through with this um, and we'll, we'll see uh, what all the pushback will be. Kevin and then Stephen to finish this off. Well, you just wonder if uh, former Governor Purdue uh, will come up with something maybe he'll call the Burt Jones activity fee that will be on everyone's uh, everyone's bill <laughs> as opposed to the Zell Miller scholarships. And... <laughs> Stephen, give us your take on all this. Well, I mean, just like Donna mentioned, when Georgia's political leaders tout a record economy with record jobs and record growth and record surpluses and record things are great, and then slash the higher education budget, there's not really any explanation for it other than politics. But when the chancellor of the university system says, I might have to raise the tuition fees, it is politics, but it's also the practical bottom line. I mean, before all of this fight in January, Sonny Perdue said, our colleges and universities are in trouble, enrollment is declining, we need more help. And the legislature's response is, less money, more problems. Sure. So it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is when we come back in January of 2024 with a new legislative session, or to see if maybe there's some behind the scenes fix of money magically falling from the sky. Rick, Dan, well, we do know that the governor said there were holes in the budget that needed to be plugged. And certainly that $66 million could somehow be one of them, although I'm not quite sure what they will have to wait and see if they find some way to uh, replace that money. I'm not sure what they do with that. Rick Dent, uh, you weren't with him when he was lieutenant governor, but you were with Zell Miller when he was governor. He would never use the budget to punish someone over politics, would he? We never did. Never, not once. You know what, what was great about Zell? He wouldn't just punish you. He would punish all your friends. He would bring you into the office and say, I'm going to kill everything you support. I'm going to kill the entire delegations, everything they support. And we're going to take all your money if you don't vote like I want you to vote. So, yeah, every now and then we did that. Right. And and uh, Rick Dent reminds us that the name of this show is, after all, Political Rewind. We're out of time for uh, today's program. I'm really grateful to a terrific panel, starting with you, uh, Rick Dent. Donna Lowry, we're glad to have you on board doing some reporting for Political Rewind. Uh We'll look forward to hearing your report. Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for being here as usual. And Kevin Riley, you know I always love having you as my partner on Thursdays. Do you want to get in a quick sports plug for your team? Well, we're in the middle of the NBA playoffs, and the two teams I care most about, of course, my Cleveland Cavaliers are playing the Knicks. They've got a that series tied 1-1, and our Atlanta Hawks are down two games to none. So we're really hoping they can come up with a win Friday here at All right. Thank you for that, Kevin Riley. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Um, Once again, we're in the middle of a pledge drive, and we certainly would appreciate your help in supporting the programming that we present here at GPB Radio. That's it for us today. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.